morning, church. Good to see you here this morning. If you have your Bible, uh, turn to the book of Philippians. We're going to be continuing on in the book of Philippians, studying our way through it verse by verse, systematically. Before we get started, let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for today. We thank you for the beauty of your creation that we we saw so very clearly this week with the beautiful weather. <clears throat> Sometimes, Lord, we need you to shine through and be evident to us so that we can, when trial and struggle comes, we can have confidence in your goodness. While we can say with our lips, we trust that you are in control, we, we sometimes falter, we sometimes stumble. We pray that today your word would be felt as well as heard your spirit would teach the truths that Paul was uh, teaching so long ago to our hearts. It would sustain and move us forward. We praise and adore you, Lord. Through the work of Jesus, through his life, his death, and his resurrection, it saves us. Pray this in his precious name. Like I said, turn to Philippians. Uh, turn to chapter 1 this morning. <clears throat> We're going to be in verse 12 and following. Uh, this is the start of the body of the letter to the Philippians. Last week, our, our first week in, Philipp in uh, the book of Philippians, we saw the introduction. Paul's the author. He's writing to the church in Philippi. And then his very typical Thanksgiving uh, introduction. And now we get to the meat of it. Chapter 1, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, just as a point of clarity, uh, when Paul says brothers in our ESV translation, he's referring to everybody in the church. And in that time, it was just the way you uh, would have said Brothers and sisters, it's not that he's excluding uh, the women. So just, just a point of clarity, I guess. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? 
Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Like I said, today we're looking at the first part of the body of the letter to the Philippians. Paul's writing to the Philippians. We discussed last week, or I said last week, that, that from evidence within the text and how, how we kind of see the Philippian church throughout all, of, all the rest of Scripture, we know that Paul and the Philippians have a really good relationship. Paul doesn't need to necessarily assert his authority by calling himself an apostle like he does in other places where there maybe is a little bit more tension, places like Galatians and Colossians, or not Colossians, Galatians and, and, and Corinthians, excuse me, where Paul has to, he's going to be a little bit more firm than he is in, in this letter, and, and so he's kind of got to assert himself. With the, the church at Philippi and Paul have a very, very good relationship. And like any good friends, when you find out that one of your friends is in a difficult situation, that's really the first thing you want to address whenever you write a letter. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. The Philippians, they know that Paul is in prison. They sent, they sent a, a, you know, a delegation to help him out while he's in prison. So they know he's in prison. And really the first bit of information that they want to kind of ease their conscience is, how are you doing? And so Paul, what he's going to do is, in, in very Pauline fashion, he's going to take this opportunity to teach something. He recognizes that the Philippians, they need to hear about how he's doing. They need to hear about how the, the mission is going. And he's going to use this situation to talk about something that I think we find through the whole of our, our encounters with the church at Philippi, both in Acts and in the letter to the Philippians. Namely, the sovereignty of God. God being in control. God having complete control over the situations. Paul is in prison. He's likely in prison in Rome. I don't know if it really matters whether he's in prison in Rome or if he's in prison in Ephesus. But he's likely imprisoned in Rome. He's writing to the Philippians. And he says, I want you to know, brothers... What has happened to me, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And so what Paul is addressing here is two worlds, or maybe let's say in a different way, two ways to approach the world. We have the one approach which is largely based on worldly reason and logic and and understanding. Where if you look at the situation and you assess the situation based on how we rationally think, you make a decision on how it's going. So we could set up two situations. We could look at Paul's situation before he's arrested versus after he's arrested and put in prison. And we could say, okay, Paul, before he's arrested and put in prison, prison, he's regularly preaching to large crowds of people. Maybe a couple hundred people at a time. And we know that Paul, he's a pretty good speaker. He's pretty effective. And he's probably leading a number of people to Christ. Let's just 
For instance, let's just think about this and let's just say maybe 5%. He's affected 5% of the people who listen to him preach are coming to know Jesus. That's pretty good. That's a pretty good number. If, if I had a room of 100 people and, and five people accepted Christ after a sermon, I'd, I'd feel pretty good that that was a success, right? So policy's successful. It's five, five people. This is how we're thinking rationally. And then Paul, he's arrested. He's put in prison. And how many people can Paul really preach to? We're going to assume that Paul's going to keep preaching because Paul's Paul, right? He's, the, he's, a, he's a, a preacher by nature. He just can't stop preaching. But he's, but he's in prison now. He doesn't have the opportunity to preach to large crowds of people. You know, maybe he's, maybe he's got the guard he's chained to. And, and maybe there's a couple other prisoners. Maybe let's say there's five people in the room. Even if Paul is 100% successful, which, right, that's crazy. He's, he's not going to be he's not going to be converting as many people while in prison as he would if he were free. So clearly, being in prison is a bad thing. I think this is earthly wisdom. I think this is how how maybe many of us would look at the situation. Would go. Clearly, it's better for Paul to not be in prison. Paul, I think, addresses the same thing whenever he calls himself a servant of Christ Jesus in verse one. I mentioned last week, I'll, I'll talk about it just briefly because I mentioned it last week. The translation is, is more literally slave in Christ Jesus. And we, we shy away from the word slave in Scripture because we have a very American, uh, American history understanding of, of the word slavery. It's based on racism. It has no benefit whatsoever to, to the slaves. But in, in, the Romans, in Roman society, there were benefits to being a slave. Number one was it wasn't based on race. You got you eventually you were set free. You had a wage while you were a slave. And then you became a Roman. Says there's benefits to being a slave in the in the Roman Empire. Now I'm not advocating slavery. It's still a, a, a giving up of your freedom. But but Paul he in the very first part, very first thing that he says to the Philippians, one of the most common ways he refers to himself is is Hey, I'm a slave in Christ Jesus. I'm I'm a I'm a willing a willing slave to Christ Jesus. And why can he say this with any kind of confidence or any kind of positive statement? Because he knows that God's plan, God's system, God's worldview, the created order that God has made, the plan and will of God in in Paul's life, it's always better than his. And so being in complete servitude to Christ Jesus is better than anything Paul can imagine. It's the same thing that's true here. Paul could look at his life situation and he could say, you know what? It makes more sense for me to be free. But he says instead, actually, this is what it should be. And the reason why I think Paul can say this with confidence is because Paul has no misunderstanding of what his role is. He says it a little bit later that his uh, that, that he is here for the defense of the gospel. Paul is told on the way to Damascus in, in the book of Acts, Jesus stops him while he's on the road to persecute more Christians. And, and, and Jesus says, hey, hey, look, this is what you're going to be. You're going to be, you're gonna be the, the messenger to the Gentiles. You're going to proclaim the story of Jesus' death and resurrection to the Gentiles. 
Jesus does not say to Paul, you are going to go to the Gentiles and win certain amount of souls to Christ. He says, no, you're just going to proclaim the message. That is your mission, as it is all of ours. We are not tasked with the responsibility of, of winning people to Jesus. We are tasked with the responsibility of proclaiming Jesus. And while we may see the results because of our proclamation, it is not our work that brings about salvation. It's the work of Christ in the world. And so Paul, as he looks at this situation, he recognizes that if, that if he's doing what he is supposed to do, and this is where he ends up, this is God's will for him then. This is why in Romans 8, Paul says, all things work for the good, for those who love God. He doesn't just mean some things. He doesn't just mean the, the things that make rational sense. He means all things. Imprisonment, famine, difficulty, trial, struggle. He gives this whole big list, right? Paul believes this because he has not only seen it, but he's lived it. He has placed his trust wholly and completely in the control, the sovereignty that God has. And he believes that it's not just that God is sovereign because God is sovereign, but, but in addition because God is good in his sovereignty. But this, this doesn't mean that life is easy, right? We don't believe that God is only in control when life is easy. Clearly Paul doesn't. He's in prison. And at this point, he's gone through some serious trials, not the least of which is being stoned to apparent death. Have you ever been hit in the head with a rock? It's not very fun. Can you imagine if a whole crowd of people were throwing rocks at you with the goal of putting you to death? It's not a very fun situation. I would say at that point, you're not going, this is really good for me. But, but what Paul understands is actually... It is. It is good. Because the mission of Paul's life is not for his own comfort. It's not for his own, it's not for his own success. It's for the proclamation of the gospel to the Gentiles. I want you to know, brothers, that. What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. It's not, it's not surprising that the Philippians are looking at the situation and going, you know what, this doesn't seem right. But Paul goes, okay, let me, let me explain it a little bit further. If you don't just, just take it on, on my word, if you don't just take it from the, from the pattern that Scripture has laid out, that God is in fact in control and that sometimes it doesn't seem like God is winning and yet God is in fact winning. When the Babylonians in the Old Testament conquer the people of Israel, it's pretty easy for the Israelites to say, it seems like God is losing, but God, the whole process says, no, I'm actually in control. I raised the Babylonians up because you're not listening. You're not with me. If you can't trust the whole of Scripture, let me give you, let me give you just two reasons why, he says. He says, so that the advancement of the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to, the, to all the rest that my imprisonment is 
for Christ. Now, note again, Paul does not say that because I have been put in prison, many Roman guards have come to know Jesus. That's not what he says. Actually, if you take it at face value, you may believe that no Roman guards have come to know Jesus. So why is this a statement? Why is Paul putting this forth as evidence that his imprisonment is to serve to advance the gospel? Because, again, it's not about the number of people that Paul converts. It's about his submission to God's will for his life. Paul, throughout the, throughout the book of Acts, he's always kind of saying, You're, I really want to go to Rome. I really want to go to Rome. I really want to go to Rome. But he really can't ever get to Rome until he's put in prison. Until he appeals to Caesar and then goes on a, on a, on a boat trip. He says, look, I haven't really had an inroad to the Roman guard. But now I do. They're chained to me. And so what Paul recognizes, he's like, look, maybe I haven't converted anybody. Maybe I haven't. I'm going to guess that maybe there was a few in there. Maybe I haven't converted anybody, but, but I'm doing exactly what I'm supposed to do. It's, it's in my imprisonment and, and in my, my time here that I have been given the opportunity to proclaim the message of Christ to people I couldn't proclaim it to before. And that's really where the point of this whole situation arises. See, because so often we look at our life situation and we're, we have a different, we live in a different world, right? We recognize that we live in a different world. We don't, we don't suffer the same kind of persecution in, in, in American culture right now as Paul did. Right? Paul's put in prison because he's preaching the gospel. He's causing riots because he's preaching the gospel. People don't like to hear that Jesus suffered and died for them, right? It doesn't make sense to us because we live in a culture that while there's some tension with Christians, we're still free to preach and still free to gather together. We don't understand that persecution, at least not in the same way. So we, we recognize that there is a difference. But Paul is not, again, not just saying it's just imprisonment that's good for the gospel. All things in Romans, all things, he says. Nothing can stop the work of God. It's His will. And so we think about our own life situation. We think about how we're, how we're going to interact with the situation. We could look at our life situation. We could look at the loss of a job as being an opportunity missed. We could look at the, the, the struggles of, of illness as an opportunity missed. We could, look at, we could look at many life situations. We could look at the fact that maybe we've lost friends because we started going to church regularly. And that, oh, look, at the, look at the distance. But the, but the problem is, is that we're so, we're so engrossed in our own personal situation that we forget to look at it from God's perspective. Paul, while in prison, he never lets his situation dictate that God is not in control. But rather, he looks at his situation and it doesn't faze him. He continues to operate in the same way. The same way that we should operate. And we should look at our situations. We should look at the struggles that we have, the trials that we have, the potential persecutions that we might experience. And we shouldn't go, it's just about me. 
right? Because sometimes it's what we do. Well, this, this trial that I'm going through is just sharpening me. Well, no, it's not actually just sharpening you. Its purpose is to advance the gospel always. Paul recognizes this. And so he uses every resource that he has while in prison. And he preaches to the, to the Roman guard. But there's more than that. In Paul's confidence in continuing to preach, we see something else happen. He says, and most of the brothers, most of the brothers, not everybody, most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. So they're looking at Paul, and they're recognized. They see Paul continuing to minister, continuing to do what he was called to do, without fear, without hesitation, and not being interrupted in that by his imprisonment. And what happens? They're much more bold to speak the word without fear. Sometimes the struggle that you go through isn't going to change you all that much. I don't know if Paul was really changed at all. He's the same Paul before he was in prison. He's preaching the gospel and he goes into prison. He preaches. He might not change, but the people around you might change. And the gospel advances. Because God is good in His sovereignty. God is good in His sovereignty. And then Paul experiences a new difficulty. One of the things that I'm noticing is, as I'm studying through Philippians is that there are a lot of verses in Philippians or maybe a lot of passages in Philippians that I feel like I know, but not within the context of the book of Philippians. Talked about a couple. We talked about one last week in, in uh, um, whatever verse it was that I talked about last week. I'm totally blanking on it now. That he will bring you to completion. I can't find it in the, there. It is verse six, and I am sure of this that that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus, of Jesus Christ. And, and so often we think of that. As, as if it's people who are struggling in their walk. But the Philippians aren't really struggling in their walk. Paul's giving them a, an additional confidence here. It's, it's kind of the same thing that we see in this verse. I think sometimes we take verses 15 to 18 to kind of out of the context of Philippians and we make them say something that's kind of dangerous. Just think about it. Let's, let's look at this whole part here together. It says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that, that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but taking, uh, thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. And sometimes what we do is we kind of pluck that out of the context and we say, well, as long as somebody is talking about Jesus, that I'll, I'll rejoice in that. As long as people are saying, Jesus, Jesus, good. There's no such thing. If you're saying Jesus, there's no such thing as heresy. We don't care about that. Sometimes we pluck this passage. This is not what Paul is saying. Paul is talking about people who have been emboldened by his imprisonment. He's not talking about everybody. He's very clearly not talking about everybody because we can just look at a couple of his other letters where he very strongly warns against false teachers. So don't listen to them. Get them out of there. 
Get rid of them. They are not, he's not rejoicing that false teachers are creeping into the church. There is a line where truth is crossed. So he's not talking about just anybody, but rather he's talking about people who within the confines of, of biblical apostolic truth, meaning truth that comes from the apostle. People who are sticking to this, within that, there is now tension that is arising. So not only is there, is there Paul is in prison versus Paul is not in prison. He's preaching to a hundred when he's not in prison. In prison, he's preaching to five while he's in prison. Not only is there is there that difficulty to overcome, is 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 this really good? But now there are people who are maybe trying to sneak their way into Paul's place of authority and Paul's place of leadership. Let me give you an example. Maybe we'll help this be a little bit clearer. Just imagine for a minute that I went to preach at a different church. I get hired by Parkside Church in Cleveland, which is where Alistair Begg, if you listen to Preachers on the Radio, maybe you know who Alistair Begg is. He's a well-known, well-known preacher. He's written a bunch of books. Highly, I, he's one of my favorite preachers. Imagine I get hired by him, and I'm, I'm his, I'm his you know, associate minister. And then, and then something happens. Begg is speeding down the highway, and he gets caught by the cops. He's arrested. He's put in jail. And that next Sunday, I have to preach for him. He was supposed to preach. I have to preach for him. Well, now here's what I'm going to do. I, I because, because really, all of us have some level of, of pride. I, I want to make sure that I do my best. And I want to make people make sure that, I, that I'm, they know that I'm as good as they. That I could, I could take his place if, if needed. It's not necessarily that these people are preaching wrongly. It's that their motivations are different. Their motivation is not because they're just bubbling over with the Lord Jesus. Their motivation is because, oh, there's a gap now. And kind of their pride is getting in the way. Truth is still being proclaimed. And this is why Paul will rejoice. So what do we do with this? What do we do? I think, I think so often life is so hard that it's easy, it's easy to discount God's control. Don't you? Am I the only person who thinks that? I don't think so. A difficult situation comes up. Maybe it's been raining for like six months. Can't plant your fields. What is going on? Maybe you just can't get over the flu. Maybe whatever. Maybe maybe because somebody found out at work that you're a Christian, you get all the really, really not very fun jobs to do. Maybe you actually have experienced some level of persecution because of your faith. I think it's far easier for us. It's far easier for man, for human to miss God's control than it is to see it. 
think that's part of our fallen nature. I think it's part of our it's part of our nature that is so inward focused that we we have a really hard time seeing past my own struggles. I think what Paul teaches us in this particular passage, I think what he's teaching us by his example, is that Paul basically just says no. He has he has a truth that God is in control. And no matter what the situation is, I'm going to trust that truth. And as he trusts that truth, the, the realities of this flow forward. We all know how we can look at a situation from two different perspectives and see two very different outcomes. Or see very, two very different maybe results. Two sporting teams, right? A lot of times people joke about the fact that, you know, a sports team will pray before a game or something. Lord, let us win. But the other team's doing the same thing, right? Or let us win. Well, the one team wins and they can go, God's good because he let us win. The other team loses and they go, well, God's not good because he didn't let us win, right? We can understand that there's two perspectives to really every situation. God is always at work. That's the promise that Scripture gives us. God is always at work, and we can either take that and believe it and have God continuously show us the evidence of that truth, or we can say, no, God's not, and we can blind ourselves to the realities of His work. There there are many times, many times, I've told this story before, and I apologize, I'm going to tell it again because it affected me in it. A number of years ago, three or four years ago, my nephew was hit by a car. They were at a they were at a father son church uh, uh, camp out, and they were fishing. And they were on the one side of the highway. There was a pond. There was another pond on the other side of the highway. And he was four years old at the time. And he climbed, he walked up the median. He went over to the other side because that was what everybody was doing. But he just went on ahead because it's you know he is he's gung ho right. And he went right out of the highway, right out of the road, because they don't experience cars at their house. They're back along the lane. They don't have to worry about the roads. This is really never something you have to get to learn. So he walked right out, car coming 35 miles an hour. She slammed on her brakes, skidded to a stop, but hit him. Another man who was there heard the skidding, turned his head, body flew, dropped right in front of him. And at this point, he's completely motionless. Completely motionless. He goes, he's gone. He dropped to his knees and he started to pray over him. My brother finally got there, heard, and I'm running. They took him to the hospital. No scratches, no broken bones, no internal bleeding. And the doctor said, I don't know how you can see this and, and think anything other than a miracle from I got a text from my mother while I was at work. And she said, I just want you to know, before you hear from somebody else, that he was hit by a car. And I went, ha. So I called her. Like, That's not a text message. It's not a text message. I said, well, you got to explain what's happening. She's like, he's all right. They're, they're at the hospital. He's not. He's, he's alive. He's breathing. We, we don't know about all the other stuff. And so I went in, I was, I was off somewhere else 
by myself working and I came into where everybody else was standing and I, and I went over to, to the people I most closely worked with and I said, I, 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 my nephew just got hit by a car. And he went, oh man, wow, crazy. And we were sitting there and we were talking about it for a little bit and he went, he went, you know what's amazing is that little kids have an amazing resiliency to harm. And I said, I said, no. No, I don't, I don't care about the science of it. A child cannot be hit by a car and walk away without a scratch. I don't care how bouncy they are. But my point in this story is that we can, in fact, look at situations. The, the, the guy I'm talking to about this, he's not a believer. We can look at life situations and we can see whatever we want. We can look at life situations through, through God's lenses. We can look at Paul's situation. We can say, he's in prison. The gospel is being hindered. And he says, no, it's not. We could look at Jesus on the cross, right? Is there any situation more, more demoralizing to a cause than its leader being killed? Jesus goes to the cross. He suffers. He dies so that, so that, so that we might be saved. Right For all of Jesus' apostles, for all of his followers, they, the, Jesus on the cross was the end of it. They were looking at this through, through life's rational situations, but that's not how God operates. And it's only after seeing his work that we get it. And so Paul, he looks. He says, I know, I believe with all my heart that God's sovereignty is good. And so his eyes are open for it and he sees it. And so what do we do? Do we look at life situations and we ask the question, is God's sovereignty good? Or do we look at life situations knowing that Father in heaven, we, again, sometimes waver and struggle. But as followers of Christ, as those who have put a trust, faith, a belief in the word of Scripture, Hold to the truth that your control, your reign over this world is sure and it is good. So that even when all life's rationale, all life's logic tells us that this situation is a loss, we can place our trust and our hope you're in control. And through your control, you will be glorified. The gospel will be proclaimed. And souls will be brought into your arms. For that, we say with Paul,